Welcome to the Powerhouse podcast number 10. This is me, Lea Lechtenberg, and Hugh Wilborn. <laughs> Thank you. Today, we dive into the topic of telling stories again. Hugh sh shares some knowledge about how to tell a story and how to listen to a story. Yep. So, you know, the best stories uh, just happen. Uh, that's kind of how this happened. And we've got a mixture. We've got a few stories in there, but we talk about some basic skills so that you can tell stories and how to take a story off the page and make it your own, make it one that you can tell without having to read, without needing a script. And um, we kind of veer a little bit into some philosophy and understanding, but we don't get lost. We get back to the stories. So don't worry. <laughs> so let's start with the most famous brothers in, I would say, Germany, their grim brothers. Yeah, the brothers Grimm were interested in, in language, actually, and in um, old stories. So if you study the development of language, you'll find something called Grimm's Law, which is about a shift in language. I think it was a vowel shift. Um, so the difference between Old German and Middle German, and then Middle German and Modern German, uh, one of those shifts is called Grimm's Law. The two famous ones in, in English language are Grimm's Law and Werner's Law. But we're not going to talk about that. I want to talk about the other thing they talked about. So they were brothers and they traveled around Germany, which wasn't modern Germany. It was, you know, whatever Germany was before that. Um, and they talked to basically people who were not literate and they asked them to tell them stories. And they wrote it down. So the stories that they heard were from people who had in turn heard those stories from their mother, their uncle, their friend, whatever, their grandparents. And those persons had also heard the stories. They were passing on the stories. So all these traditional stories, and they found similar ones and occasionally the same ones over and over and over again. All these traditional stories are stories that have been told from one person to another and that person to another and that person to another countless times. And that tells you something quite important, which is that for each of those stories, a lot of different people, very different people, all thought, I know, I'm going to tell that story. First of all, they remembered it, and secondly, they thought it's worth telling it again for whatever reason, right? In other words, let's say thousands and thousands of different people at different times thought this story is worth telling again. Perhaps they didn't even think it, they just felt it. But for whatever reason, a human being told the same story to another human being. Now, obviously, each telling was slightly different. It wasn't a script. They tell the story as if they're seeing it in their mind's eye. But they tell the, the story. And if you like, all the little variations, they kind of, most of them get knocked off. A few of them get built in. 
But there's something about this story that appeals to thousands of different people. They all feel, yeah, I want to tell that story. So there's something profoundly connected to humans of an enormous variety, old ladies, young men, old men, middle-aged men, children who tell the story their own way. Each person tells it their own way, but they all think, yeah, all feel, yeah, I want to tell that story. I like that story. I want to tell that story. And so there's something, all the kind of personal little bits get mostly bashed off, but the most deep, most human bit is the bit that is repeated over and over again. So if you pick up a copy of Grimm's fairy tales, which nowadays is a book, it's a written book, and you read one of those stories, frankly, they're a bit weird when you read them. They're not that great. They're a bit repetitive. You think, oh, I kind of know this. And you think, oh, here's another poor boy, and here's another king, and here's another queen, and the wicked stepmother. And it's kind of flat. It's not, it's not great, to be honest. It's, it's like being a non-musician looking at the score of Beethoven's pastoral symphony. You can kind of work it out, but it doesn't, you know, it's a bit flat, right? Not the same as listening to a magnificent performance. So if you want to be a storyteller and all you've got is this written out script from Grimm's, well, you have to read it in enough to know the story. And then you have to go through it in your mind and picture it, imagine it, see the pictures, see the story like a little film, if you like. And then you have to tell it your way. And that's like planting a seed in the ground and watering it and let it, letting it grow. Or it's like reading the music, picking up your instrument and starting to play. Now, if I play a tune, I'm going to play it ever so slightly different from you, even if it's the same tune. So there's something about my playing which won't be the same as your playing. But we can both do it well, or for that matter, badly. <laughs> but gradually, gradually, when I tell a story, it comes to life. And it comes back towards where it came from, because originally all of these traditional stories were just told. Somebody saw it in their head and they told it to somebody else. It went in your ear, into your brain. You saw it in your eyes. And it soaked into your memory. And then you too become a person who's able to tell that story. And it turns out a well-told story is very, very different from reading a story. So when you tell the story well, you see it in your mind's eye and your audience will see it as well. So if I talk to you about a young woman who dreams, she has a dream. And in her dream, she dreams this beautiful headdress. It's kind of like a, 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 a wreath of gold and silver leaves that are so fine, so thin, that they flutter a little bit in the wind on the, on the finest gold and silver metalwork. 
and she thinks, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. And she wakes up and she goes to her father and she says, daddy, daddy, I've had the most amazing dream. I dreamt about this beautiful headdress. It was made of gold and silver leaves that were so fine that they flutter in the breeze. And her father, who, who loved her very much, he said, darling, I will have that headdress made for you. And so her father, who happened to be a king, he summoned all the goldsmiths and all the silversmiths in the, in the land, and he called them to his palace in his great big hall, and he said, my daughter has dreamt of a silver and gold headdress made of leaves so fine that they flutter in the breeze. Whoever can make such a headdress that will please my daughter will get their own weight in gold. Well, I'm sure you'd like to know what happens next. And another time I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but if you can see that headdress, then we've shared something. And if you can feel the excitement and the interest and how the, the, the joyous naivety, the innocence of that daughter and the indulgence of the father, Already we've connected a great deal, not just to that family whom we've seen, but you and I have shared something. We've shared something that honestly we can't put into words better than we've already heard. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that quite clear. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking before we started recording about the strangeness of the endless commentary within which we live. So right now, whatever topic you're interested in, you could look it up on Google mm -hmm. and you could read about it for more or less the rest of your life. You could follow links, you could follow footnotes, you could follow references, and you could find a, a, an infinity of scientific papers or opinion pieces or books or data or history or commentary about pretty much every topic in the world. Sadly, a lot of it will be quite boring and a lot of it will be misunderstood and a lot of it will be misleading. However, I think we can definitely say that all the information you might ever need to have or get or read is already out there. We've got two problems. One is that it's difficult for us perhaps to understand. And secondly, there's an awful lot of rubbish around it. So we have to find what's rubbish and what's real. And then when you find the real stuff, we have to struggle to understand it. And here we come across a great paradox. in particular, relating to literacy and writing. So in the, the modern era, let's say after the age of reason, we have gradually, gradually moved towards the notion that real knowledge, if we're clever enough and thoughtful enough and accurate enough, can be written down. 
And if we're well enough educated, we can read and gain that knowledge. So we can read all these different theories, all these explanations of things, and then we can understand them. And yet, all of this knowledge and information is available. Many of us have read and understood a great deal. And yet, there's an enormous amount of misunderstanding of, and very, very foolish behavior. So we have experts who turn out to be wrong over and over again. We have leaders who make very, very bad decisions. So this reason, this vast amount of knowledge seems to be not enough. We're all capable of logic, capable of being rational. We have all the information we might need and yet consistently scientists, experts and politicians make the wrong decisions. You think, well, that's very strange, is it not? There's something problematic about this massive amount of theoretical knowledge. It seems that we somehow understand it, and yet when we add it all together, we don't understand it. We understand little bits, but we don't seem to understand the whole story, the whole picture. How can that be? I mean, very, very briefly, and it's just an example. So for the last, whatever it is, two years or so, politicians and scientists have been obsessed with COVID, and there's an enormous amount of information and data about COVID, and they still make a lot of very, very bad decisions. Why is that? Well, the very obvious example is they fail to pay attention to the context, to the social, economic, and indeed even medical context. So COVID is one of many problematic illnesses or diseases. COVID has, if you try to isolate people because of COVID, then you also isolate them socially and economically. And that causes other problems. So this simple fixation on on one particular illness has caused a very distorted approach to the world as a whole. And that's very, very foolish. Regardless of what you think they do about COVID, they should still take into account all the other elements of our lives and society and all the other elements of healthcare. And they fail to do that. Well, how come? How come so many politicians and experts and scientists have been so astonishingly stupid? And the answer is because that's how they're used to thinking. That's entirely normal for people like that. They're used to assembling knowledge, assembling theories, and focusing on the bit that matters to them. If you are the, 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 the very paradigm of science, one of the core elements is the notion of an experiment. You isolate a single element or a single reaction and cut away all the confounding, confusing things and you just that bit to find out the truth about that experiment. And you do indeed find it, but only when it's separated from the rest of the world. And we tend not to focus on that. We tend to go, oh yes, now we know the truth about what happens when you add sulfuric acid to copper sulfate. 
But that's only if there's only those two elements in your test tube. When you do it in the real world, when there are other possibilities of things interfering, you may get a different result. So what sort of thinking would help you understand the world as a whole, as opposed to unique single elements isolated from the rest of it? Strangely enough, one of the things that's gonna help is listening to a lot of stories. Because stories are the opposite of science. There's something very human about them because they've been told from one person to another, to another, to another. But they can't be reduced to a finding, to a simple one-line meaning. The meaning of the story is X. If ever you say that, you've either betrayed the story or it wasn't a story worth telling. Somehow what we learn from stories is always a lot bigger than the story itself. It's almost as though the story is a hologram and occasionally we see a little flicker through it. We see, oh my goodness, I've just seen something about the way the world is. And that teaches me several things. One of the most important is humility. I realize I don't really understand very much about the world. I don't have the arrogance of a scientist who can take his 10 theories, stick them all together and say, I know what to do. On the contrary, I'm a, I may well have to make a decision, but I don't do it on the basis that I know I'm right. I do it on the basis that I have to do something and this is my best shot. But equally, if I'm humble, there will be many times when I realize I don't know enough to do anything. And one of the great problems, again, of the COVID madness has been the politicians felt they had to do something instead of going, well, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't have to do all of this stuff. Maybe we just have to sit back, watch nature do its case, kind of look after the very vulnerable people and let everybody else just carry on and get some immunity. And strangely, the places that do that or did that have done very, very well. So that, I mean, you know, a theory can indeed be a very interesting, even accurate understanding of an element of reality. But there's, some, there's a considerable difference between adding up the output of a bunch of different theories and having a more holistic, experiential, contextual, grounded understanding of the world. So that's all a bit philosophical. I think I should tell another story. Yeah, please. Uh, well, uh, you'll have to talk to me until I find a story that needs to be told. <laughs> okay, so I was just thinking, I mean, <clears throat> you can learn to tell stories. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we said that in this podcast. Maybe you can say some sentence about that. Can we also learn to understand stories? Is there, is there progress in the more stories you listen to, the more insights you will get, or the harder you listen to a story, the more you understand it? Um, okay. So how, how do you tell a story? Um, 
to be honest, I would say, go for simplicity. One of the most irritating things for me is when somebody says, uh, oh, there was a princess. She was so beautiful. Her cheeks were like uh, the wings of a dove. Her lips were like the, 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 the color of rubies. Her eyes were like, uh, shut up. Just, tell, you know, okay, she's beautiful. She kind of got a foxy look about her and a peculiar nose. That's enough. That's all we need. We don't need all of this kind of overblown stuff, right? But that's, if you like, a contemporary point of view. Maybe a hundred years ago, people wanted to hear about lips like rubies or cherries or lipstick or whatever. Um, but just because it worked back then, that doesn't mean it works now. You have to be, in my mind, as economical as possible. But the single most important thing is to see the story in your own mind, with your mind's eye, and then tell us what you see, yeah? There's a principle of rhetoric called synecdoche or um, metonymy, which is part for whole. So I can, I can tell you a lot about something, somebody just by telling you about a tiny detail. So if you think about it, you know, you see a guy and you think, oh, he's quite hunky. Why is that? He's just got this, his hair. He's got this dark curly hair. It's not too curly. It's not too straight. It's just about right, right? Now for one woman, that kind of it, that kind of sums it up. You go, yeah, I know what he means. I know what you mean. And then you fill in all the rest of yourself. So that'll do, right? And he's tall as well, we like that. Um, so whatever it is, you know, those one or two details will, if you tell what strikes you, then other people will find what strikes them. So let's be, see it in your mind's eye and be economical. And then, enjoy telling it. That's very important. And I often say that telling a story is a bit like skiing down a piste on a mountain. So, I mean, I haven't done much skiing. I've done a little bit, but basically the skiing, there's two sorts, you know, you ski off piste, which means just no, there's no markings anywhere you go. It's great. Um, but most of us ordinary people go on pistes, which are like paths, big wide paths that go down the mountain. So you can go down the same piece many, many times, but you never go exactly the same way, right? You, you don't go, it's not like a railway line. It's a big wide thing. On the other hand, you'll go, oh, I really love that little jump or I really love that corner. And so you kind of learn to take it in a certain way. And sometimes you go, whoa, that was fun. I really liked that. And telling a story is like that. There are kind of straight bits, there are curvy bits, there are bouncy bits. And you find a way to get over it that really satisfies you and you, you're kind of enjoying it. But remember, you're telling the story for your audience, right? So you want to tell it in a way that's satisfying for them. So it's not about self-indulgence. It's not about, oh, I want to tell you about la, 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 because I'm really interested in it. You have to find out as you tell a story more and more what happens when you say it this way or that way? If you slow down a bit, what happens? If you speed up a bit, what happens? And gradually, as a storyteller, you get to feel your audience. Now, there are some storytellers who don't do that at all. They completely ignore the audience. They go, my vision of this beautiful person is so incredibly wonderful that you must all listen to me. 
and I'm going to shout so loudly that I insist that you see it my way. That's a kind of style. And personally, I find it astonishingly boring. <laughs> but there are people who do that. But there are others who talk to their audience. They say, hey, there was this little mouse. It was just an ordinary looking mouse. Okay? But one day, the mouse was looking out of this hole and he saw a foot. And I'm talking to you, right? I'm seeing the little mouse. Actually, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm talking to you. I'm not trying to tell you a big story about footwear. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, find your style. But to be honest, my preference would be a style that is meeting your audience. Mm -hmm. Because when you really share with your audience the feeling of being in the story, there's a very beautiful experience much more beautiful than the slightly narcissistic, I can tell you now about this amazing castle in which the wizard lived, which is, nah. You know, that's kind of, uh, you could, that's what I would call compelling bullshit. You know, you can bullshit people. It's like you watch a real, what do you call those things? Um, uh, blockbuster movie, you know? And it's full of bang and crash and whiz and whatever. And you come out and you can hardly remember the plot and you basically feel beaten up and your adrenaline's been zapped, but there's nothing really left. It was all effects. There was no real connection. So there are people who do that. They tell stories like that. If you want to do it, go do it. I've got nothing to help you with that. I want to do it the other way. So you, you take your route down the ski slope, you jump the little jumps, you take the little corners. And what matters is little by little, you get better and better at being able to tell the story and being able to see the story and being able to pay attention to your audience. And I have a one-liner, which is a good storyteller can never be heckled. So heckling is, is a thing that normally happens in comedy clubs. So someone's telling jokes and someone in the audience cries out, you're an idiot or makes a mess of the joke for the performer but i would argue that if you're telling a story you're actually having a conversation even though you may be doing 99.99 percent of the talking you should be always connecting to your audience noticing them nodding seeing what happens if they lose you and going back to catch them and get them back online show them what you're seeing. So if they say to you, what happened there? You go, oh, that's a good question. What did happen? What happened to the little squirrel after we left him? Well, that's another story. Perhaps I'll tell it to you. But now we're gonna go back with our hero, the little mouse who's scurrying down the track in the forest, yeah? So we, you can't be heckled if you're in the middle of a conversation. Somebody might interrupt you and you go, well, oh, sorry, yeah, that's a good question. So what have we said now about stories? We said, see it in your mind's eye. Keep it simple. Enjoy telling it and feel your audience. And here's another thing. While you're telling the story, after a while, you discover the story has its own 
and it's kind of taking you along. And that's a strange, strange experience, but it's rather beautiful when it happens. And you'll find the story will teach you when to pause, it'll tell you when to be bigger and better and louder, and then it'll teach you, boom, here's the end. The best parallel I can give you to that is, is uh, dancing. So if you learn a dance, which, um, <laughs> if you learn a dance with lots of different steps in it, okay, so you've got a, a triple step and a this step and a kick and a flick and a whatever it is, yeah? When you're having a really great dance with a great partner and a great band, you'll suddenly think, wow, I just did a flick, a move, a twist, a turn that I had no idea I knew how to do. It just happened. Because I've taught my body the vocabulary and now it started doing things that I'm not in charge of. And that's a rather wonderful experience. And I can see you're laughing at me because I can't help but talk about dancing. But, you know, dancing and storytelling, along with music, like making music, are the fundamentals of, well, we, it, nowadays we call it human entertainment. But before, back in the day, when things weren't split up into entertainment and history and psychotherapy and geography and all the different divisions we have of modernity. Essentially, it was all the same stuff. Education was the same as entertainment, was the same as history, was the same as psychotherapy. And it was all done through stories, through apprenticeship, through experience, and through dancing. Dancing was what pretty much all cultures did. And everybody did. It was terribly normal to do dancing. And it was terribly normal to do dancing where you'd hold on to other people, either in a big group or in, in couples, whatever. So modern dancing is frankly deeply weird. You know, standing around on your own, wobbling and waggling is it kind of, it's odd. It's maybe slightly psychotic, I don't know. But traditional dancing, wasn't, it wasn't that everyone was as brilliant as the people you see on television. Traditional dancing was just, a few steps here, a few steps there, but people had rhythm, people knew the basics, and that's how they met and connected. And dancing along with storytelling has a lot more to it. You know, dancing is more than just moving to the music. Storytelling is more than just running a narrative or a plot past you. There's a lot of depth in both of them. So as a listener, when I listen to stories, I can get most out of it when dot dot dot. You can continue that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> when the storyteller does a good job, you know you're the audience. It's not. It's you can get the most out of it if if you show them when you're bored, because if you're bored, it's not your fault. Right? The storyteller has lost you. It's up to the storyteller to get oh. Now I know you're interested in the giant, and I know you're interested in the giant, and I know you're interested in the giant, but Leah there is not at all interested in the giant, are you? <laughs> you what, what do you want to know about? You want to know about the cat, or the beanstalk, or the stepmother, yeah? the mouse. or maybe you're more interested in the mouse, or your telephone, who knows, right? But let's, let's, the, the, 
because the other thing that happens when you tell a story, when a story is well told, or indeed when a, when a, a good piece of theater happens is community happens, right? There's a lot of talk about community as though it's this kind of abstract weird thing that, that we should all do or there are community leaders. This is all nonsense, right? Community is an event, right? People happen to be in a community when they eat together, when they sing together, when they dance together, or when they're listening to a story and they are all listening and we all feel it and see it, that's real community. So if I'm the storyteller and I'm telling it to all of these people and you're sitting there looking bored, that's not great. It's not great. Now, I'm not telling you that every storyteller is perfect. We're not. But there's always that challenge if you're telling a story is, can I bring everybody in? That's what your goal should be. Yeah. And also, if you're sitting and you're bored of the story and you really don't want to listen, well, you should leave. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to go to the lavatory. Well, go and do that. That's more important. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end, it's kind of that actors are also storytellers. They can be, yeah. I mean, the greatest theater companies are, if you like, many-headed storytellers. But having said that, you know, let's be brutal. Most storytellers are not as good as we would like them to be. And the same is true of actors. And actually, the same is true of pretty much every occupation and profession there is in the world. Because our training, our education is not very good. And even more importantly, there are a lot of people who aren't very good at their job because they're not in the right job. Or the job is not big enough or well-structured enough for a proper human being. So there are some jobs that just are, are not big enough to allow a human being to do them really well. They're just too small or they're badly shaped. And there's a lot of that. So ideally, everyone would leave those jobs, the jobs would disappear and we'd do proper things. But many of us are caught by the very obvious things of parental expectations and financial pressure. So there are people who take on debt and then realize the way they're going to pay for it is to do things that mutilate their soul. And that is a great sadness. Okay, anything to <laughs> add? for today <laughs> um uh there was one thought that came to me just there i wanted to add um when we were talking about stories okay so i don't know if i've told this before but there was a wonderful wonderful psychiatrist and hypnotherapist uh in the 20th century in America called Milton H. Erickson. And he was um, a remarkable man. He was born on a farm. He had polio as a child and he remobilized himself because he realized that he thought about moving his finger. He couldn't move it, he was paralyzed, but he imagined it vividly. And then his finger just moved a tiny little bit. So little by little, he imagined moving, and then he imitated his, one of his younger siblings, who was a baby, you know, big family, and he had a little baby 
girl or boy learning to crawl. And he imitated that little baby girl and boy and learned to move again, aged 17. But because of the polio, he, he never recovered full, the full strength that he had. So he couldn't be a farmer and he became a doctor and then he became a psychiatrist and he was fascinated by hypnosis. He got quite a reputation and people would come to him to sort out their problems. And he was teaching um, at a university as well as being a, a, a doctor. And a couple of students came to see him, uh, a boyfriend, girlfriend, and the girl was pregnant. Now this was back in the fifties and that was a social nightmare, an unmarried student pregnant. And they were desperate for a termination. They wanted to have an abortion, but they were terrified. And they came to Ericsson, they said, please, please, can you hypnotize us so that we can go through with this because we're just terrified, we don't know what to do, and we're, but we, we must have a, a termination. My parents will go mad, her parents will go mad. They were very upset. And Ericsson talked to them for two or three hours and he was trying to get them to see things differently, but they, they just couldn't. And, and he said, eventually he said, okay, come back and see me next week may be able to help you but there's one thing that you must not do before you come back next week you must not think of a name for the baby well they came, back the next week. <laughs> they came back the next week they'd thought of a name for the baby she took a year out. They had the baby. The parents were reconciled. It was a beautiful baby. She came back. They got married. They finished their degrees. It was a happily ever after story. I used to tell that when I was, that whole story I've just told you, I would tell it when I was teaching hypnosis because Erickson didn't just hypnotize people. He was very strategic. He would do things that would force people to make decisions yeah he would use the context around them and i used to say look this is a story of how incredibly manipulative this man was he you, you couldn't get away with that these days it was way more manipulative than you could do now it was terrible now i used to tell that story and it wasn't until i'd been teaching for at least two years that i realized hang on i really haven't understood this whole story because imagine if that couple had not thought of a name for the baby. Then one week later, they wouldn't even have had to come and see him. They would have been able to go and do what they wanted to do. But I didn't realize that. I thought it was just a one-way ticket. You know, he was forcing them to think of a name for the baby. But what he was actually doing was forcing a decision. And I didn't realize that. So. One of the things about stories is that, you know, maybe there's more to learn. Maybe when I listen back to that story again, I'll realize something else. And maybe there's something else behind that. So I used to think I know what that story meant. And it's not that it doesn't mean that. It means more than that. So that's why I say to people when I'm teaching stories, don't give a title and don't give the moral because actually we don't really know the whole of what a story means. And it turns out that is a very, very good thing. Do you think Milton Erickson did it intuitively 
or did he really strategically planned it? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll tell you something else. There are four volumes of Milton Erickson's work. So two volumes of clinical work and two volumes of research work. And he's without doubt the most significant and influential hypnotist of the 20th century, if not ever. And in all of those four volumes, he does not once offer a theory of hypnosis. He'll tell stories about working with clients and he will report the findings of clinical research and experimental research, but he never once defines hypnosis or offers a theory of it. And yet he was the greatest hypnotist definitely of the 20th century and possibly of all time. I will go and check him out now. <laughs> if you want, the, the easiest introduction, and we'll put this in the notes, is a book by Jay Haley called Uncommon Therapy. But, but there's a, a vast literature now. There's an enormous amount written about him. Okay, yeah. <laughs> what the sign was like, kill it, kill it. <laughs> That's the end. That's the end. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great topic. I really enjoyed it. Cool. I will check some things out now. Excellent. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. If you want to know more about the Powerhouse, check our webpage at www.powerhouseclass.com and there's also a link through to Hugh's website. Thanks a lot for listening today. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>